Head him up. Head him up. Move him on. Move him on. Head him up. Roll high. Light him up. Move him on. Hit him up. Hit him up. Move him on. Roll high. Knock him out. Count him dead. Make him tea. Buy him drinks. Meet the mama. Milk him hard. Roll high. This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Howdy. Good to have you join us for another action-packed episode of the Six Gun Justice Podcast, where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm Richard Prosh, and writing Drag Behind the Herd is my co-host, Paul Bishop. Howdy, Paul. How are you? Yeah, yeah, get along there. These Dan doggies just won't cooperate. You think we were trying to wrangle a herd of cats in a rainstorm? (laughs) Maybe, like our listeners, they don't know where this episode is headed. Well, dagnabbit, today we're eating trail dust as we track down two of the most popular TV westerns, Rawhide and Wagon Train. I know you're all excited about your new roping skills. I've been practicing ever since the last episode. But before we get back to rounding up the doggies, you've got some recommendations from our listeners. I do. These are from comments left on our blog post in connection to our recent full-length episode featuring the U.S. Cavalry. Six-Gun Justice Deputy Tim DeForest's comment sent me to my bookshelves to locate my copy of Luke Short's novella, Trumpets West, which is now at the top of my to-be-read tower. And Michael, who's based in France and apparently doesn't have a last name, praises two cavalry novels, An Obituary for Major Reno by Richard Wheeler and A Road We Do Not Know by Frederick Chevetone which is a fictional account recreating the Battle of Little Bighorn using original diaries, letters, and transcripts from interviews with Sitting Bull. That sounds fascinating. It does. I've never heard of Chiviaton before, or however he pronounces his name, but he appears to be a highly regarded historical fiction novelist. There are so many novels and stories about Little Bighorn. You know, we really should do a full-length episode featuring Custer sometime next year. That's a great idea. I'll put it on the schedule. Have you read anything of note since last episode? Yeah, I have. I recently put together a top 10 list of favorite Western stories for a speed listen installment of the podcast. That episode was a lot of fun and is now available for our listeners. But don't tell me, one of the short story authors begged you to read more, didn't they? Paul, we've talked about this before, but one benefit of owning a metric ton of books is the ability to go grab something off the shelf when you discover, or in this case, rediscover a writer. So Frank Bonham's story, Burn Him Out, which I first read in the Mammoth Book of Westerns, edited by John Lewis, led me to his collection of stories, One Ride Too Many, which is an entry in the Barricade Classic Western series edited by Martin Greenberg and Bill Pronzini. I know that series. There are hefty trade paperbacks with rousing pulp magazine-inspired covers of bright yellow and red. Each of the four offers a collection of pulp stories by a specific author. Ed Gorman, Les Savage Jr., Ryerson Johnson, and I have the Frank Bonham one. It's a good set to own and one that presents well on the shelf when you line them all up. One Ride Too Many includes the title story, along with 12 others that originally graced the pages of Argosy, Zane Gray's Western Magazine, Dime Westerns, and Blue Book. 
Every tale inside is a winner, but I'll still give top props to the much-anthologized Burn Him Out. In that story, rancher Will Starrett and his neighbors are under attack by a horde of hungry grasshoppers, and big man Cowper's foreman, Bill Hamp, is for torching the land everywhere, starting, of course, with what belongs to other men. More than once, Bottom stands by his theme of the sanctity of the individual above the mob, and more than once, Starrett ruminates out loud or to himself what it means to own and work a piece of land. Bottom contrasts that with folks who simply don't comprehend the enormity of such a proposition. There's a lot more going on here than a simple action yarn, but there's plenty of that too. Equally as important as the stories herein, One Ride Too Many contains a partial Frank Bonham bibliography of novels, mystery novels, and young adult novels. It's a great place to start for readers new to Bonham's work. Included in that list of published work is my second Frank Bonham recommendation, a 1964 Fawcett Gold Medal paperback, Logan's Choice, Here's the story of Tom Logan, Arizona rancher on the Mexican border, whose father was a friend of the vicious, free-roaming Yaqui Indians. Tom shares the region with rancher Clyde Barksdale and a young homesteader from the east, Laura Sutton. Laura blames Tom for the suicide of her wimpy brother, so Clyde figures he's got an open shot at Laura and her ranch, especially since his lunk-headed buddy, Joe Breen, is Laura's ranch hand. All of this is kind of background potboiler to the real trouble that fires up when Barksdale and Breen kill a couple Yaki Indians and steal their gold. They try to frame Tom for the killing, but unbeknownst to them, local saloon keeper and resident sleazeball Nacho Ruiz has witnessed the event and he wants his cut too. So the Yaki's want to knock off Tom in any one of a dozen gruesome ways. Breen wants all the gold for himself. Nacho wants all the gold for himself. Barksdale wants all the gold for himself, plus Laura Sutton and her ranch. Laura, she isn't sure what she wants. Good old Tom just wants to live in peace and quiet on his ranch. There's a bunch of killing to be done first, naturally, and Tom's not above doing some of it as long as he's killing the right folks. Bonham puts together a tough-as-mesquite story that held my attention for two sittings and made me glad I wasn't buried up to my neck in sand watching as crazed stallions pounded toward me. That's one of the earliest scenes in the book. And while the excitement lets up here and there, the mystery and suspense doubles down. As good a gold medal western as you'll find, it is mucho recommended. More titles to add to my ever-growing list. You were kind enough to recently send me a copy of a book which has got many of our western reader friends excited, and I definitely think it's worth mentioning here. I was excited myself when I came across a listing for a Hacks Notebook, which is the recently published autobiography of Ben Haas. As most hardcore Western fans know, Haas is the writer behind the highly regarded Western series Fargo, which he wrote under his John Benteen pseudonym. A Hacks Notebook is mandatory reading for even casual fans of Haas or Fargo. Reading it, you really get the feeling you're having a chat with Haas and getting to know him. It's a very enjoyable read that ends far too soon, because Haas passed away before he could finish it. However, his son Joel, who's a noted sculptor in his own right and was involved in writing some of the Fargo books, edited the partial manuscript and added supplemental information along with valuable notes that put everything in context. And as you know, Paul, we certainly aren't the only two Western fans who love Haas's books, not only the Fargo series, but his Sundance series and his other numerous standalone Westerns written under various pseudonyms. This book's going to be on a lot of listeners' Christmas lists, which brings up something our buddies over at Paperback Warrior mentioned recently. What do you buy for guys like us at Christmas? We've got to be a real pain in Santa's katukas. 
Katukas? Yeah, I picked the word up from a Hallmark Christmas movie. We all know what it means in a PG-13 kind of way. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You watch Hallmark Christmas movies? Let's not go there. You'll ruin my street cred. But I'm serious. What do you say when you get asked what you want for Christmas? Books. Always more books. And how many of our family or friends know the type of books you like to read? Or do they drop the latest hardcover James Patterson on you, figuring you'll love it because they do? Uh, uh-huh. Exactly. However, the Internet has been a boon for putting people with niche interests in touch. You and I both belong to the Men's Adventure Paperbacks of the 20th Century group on Facebook. And there's a Christmas activity sponsored by the group that cracks me up because it addresses this very issue. Vigilante Santa? Absolutely, Vigilante Santa, which is our manly version of Secret Santa. Participants are given the name of another participant from the group to whom they anonymously send two used men's adventure paperbacks they think the recipient will enjoy. In return, they'll receive two books from another anonymous participant. How long have we been doing Vigilante Santa? This is the fourth year, and the crazy thing about it is I've never known a bunch of guys of a certain age to get so excited about getting a surprise, poorly wrapped gift of two used paperbacks, usually picked up in a thrift shop at a garage sale or from a hidden corner of that endangered species, the used bookstore. It's probably because everybody else is going to be giving them socks and ties or, at best, an Amazon gift card. But if they're on Vigilante Santa's nice list, they're going to get two used paperbacks aimed right at their reading wheelhouse bullseye. Sent by a guy they probably never met in person, but who also thinks 180-page lightning-fast Western or adventure paperbacks from the 50s through the 70s are the perfect gift. And the even weirder thing is they're just as enthusiastic about sending two used paperbacks to somebody else for them to enjoy. So my point is they should have a list handy for friends and family of the reference type books we talk about here, like a Hacks Notebook, which are easily available from Amazon. And they can even add DVDs to their list of the Western movies and TV shows we talk about here on the podcast, which are also readily available today. And that brings us to the first of the Western TV shows we are featuring in this episode. It's a thousand miles from San Antonio to the railhead at Sedalia, Missouri. We got 3,000 head of Texas cattle that just don't want to go. When everything's right, we cover eight miles a day. But how often are things right? The weather's what hits you the hardest between the eyes. Boiling sun that dries up the water, brings the dust in the sand, storms that mill the cattle, touch off stampedes. The way the land lies can hurt you too, wearing off pounds with each step the beeves take. But the way to even things up is to hire the best men in the business. And I got them. Pete Nolan's scout. Rowdy Yates, new as they come, but he's got the makings. Joe Scarlet swing. Jim Quint's flank. And the man who can make or break the drive, the cook, Wishbone. And the cook's louse. His name is Mushy. Somebody's got to kick this whole kit and caboodle along. That's me. Gil Favor. Trail boss. I ride point. Rolling, rolling, rolling. The sixth longest running TV Western aired 217 episodes between January of 1959 until September 1965. 
following Wagon Train at eight years, The Virginian at nine years, Bonanza at 14 years, Death Valley Days at 18 years, and Gunsmoke at 20 years, Rawhide was a solid hit for CBS. It began when Charles Marquis Warren, a writer, producer, and director who'd been instrumental in adapting Gun Law, which became Gunsmoke, was approached by CBS. Warren had just finished working on the Western film Cattle Empire with Joel McRae. CBS was looking for an answer to Wagon Train and the promise of Cattle Empire, wherein a cowboy ex-con takes off on a cattle drive, was the perfect place to start. Cattle Empire became Cattle Drive, which became Rawhide. And it was Warren who first wrote the immortal lines that became something of a catchphrase, head them up, move them out. Set in the 1860s, the show told the story of a group of wranglers, drovers, and cowpunchers on a series of cattle drives between Texas and Sedalia, Missouri. Eric Fleming played Gil Favor, trail boss, and Clint Eastwood, the good-looking, impetuous Rowdy Yates. The trail scout was Pete Nolan, played by Sheb Woolley, and the cook, whose name was Wishbone, was played by Paul Berniger. Jim Quince, played by Steve Rains, and Joe Scarlett, played by Rocky Shahan, were drovers, with Jesus Pantines, Robert Cabal, as a wrangler. Sharp viewers can note Rains, Shahan, and Cabal as bit players in the movie Cattle Empire. Unlike a lot of shows we've covered, Rawhide has three distinct episodes that can be called the pilot. The first episode filmed with on-location footage is Incident West of Llano. And though it's most often called the pilot by fans, it really isn't. Incident of the Tumbleweed Wagon is also sometimes thought to be the pilot because it's the first episode to actually air. In fact, the true pilot is Incident at Baker Springs. As a bit of trivia, in the original filmed episode, Robert Carricart appears as Wishbone. However, his scenes were actually refilmed with Paul Brenniger before broadcast. After 10 episodes, CBS got cold feet with Rawhide. With so many Western-themed competitors, the network pulled the show. Two months later, they changed their mind and gave Rawhide a green light. Clint Eastwood used that odd furlough to guest star on an episode of Maverick. Rawhide didn't shy away from hot topics of the day. For example, the episode Incident of the Iron Bull dealt with bigotry and racism. The Captain's Wife tackled mental illness and featured Barbara Stanwyck as sort of an Old West Lady Macbeth. Robert Culp plays an ex-soldier and morphine addict in Incident at the Top of the World. Though, gritty realism, but with guest stars like Stanwyck, Frankie Avalon, Dean Martin, and Lon Chaney Jr. The show's writers aimed the episodes at an adult audience, creating deeply felt characters, then inserting them into morality plays with no easy answers. Being filmed in black and white only added to the grittiness of the early seasons. It's this realism that makes the early seasons of Rawhide eminently watchable time and time again. In this way, Rawhide was much like Wagon Train. Producer Charles Warren referenced a diary written in 1866 by trail boss George C. Duffield during a cattle drive from San Antonio to Sedalia to shape Gil Favor's character. And Fleming's straight-ahead underplayed acting style fit the character very well. Favor's voiceover reading from his diary to introduce an episode or spur along the narrative became a familiar and much-beloved trope. In real life, Fleming was even tougher than the character he played. He was born with a club foot and so badly abused by his father that at eight years old he attempted to kill the old man with a gun that jammed. He soon ran away from home and landed in the company of gangsters in Chicago and L.A., 
where he was wounded in a gunfight at age 11. Serving in the Navy in World War II, his face was crushed during a bet over the lifting of a 200-pound weight. The handsome face on the screen was a result of extensive reconstructive surgery. Before Rawhide, he played in a few B-movies, like Queen of Outer Space with Zaza Gabor, and afterwards guested on Bonanza. That's not to say Fleming was without talent. He co-wrote two Rawhide scripts, Incident of the Night on the Town, and A Woman's Place. Eastwood, on the other hand, was 28 years old and just getting started with his career. As listeners well know, the part of Rowdy Yates led to bigger things for the future superstar, actor, producer, and director. What's interesting here, though, is that when Fleming, along with four other stars, Woolley, Murdoch, Cabal, and Shahan, were fired at the end of the seventh season, Eastwood alone could not keep up the ratings. Eastwood later admitted that by this time, though he was being paid $100,000 a year to do it, he was tired of playing Rowdy Yates, a character he never got to portray the way he wanted. Eastwood said there wasn't enough darkness in Yates, not even any odd quirks. Still, he valued the experience and treasured the character. Eastwood later honored his rawhide beginnings in Unforgiven, the 1992 Oscar-winning film he both directed and starred in, by wearing Rowdy Yates boots throughout the entire film. Rowdy Yates was promoted to trail boss. He lasted 13 episodes. Without the chemistry between the two original leads, Rawhide bit the dust. In his defense, Eastwood notes the network had also shifted Rawhide into a time slot on Tuesday nights opposite a show with the same male audience, ABC's World War II drama Combat. It could be, too, that the original tough, nihilistic focus had been replaced with a meandering angst and less action. Best remembered today as Clint Eastwood's launching pad, Rawhide also gave us the iconic and unforgettable theme. Written by Dmitry Tiumkin, with lyrics by Ned Washington, and recorded by Frankie Lane, the theme from Rawhide was immortalized in 1980's Blues Brothers and shows up, strangely enough, quite often in animated films like Shrek 2, Happy Feet 2, An American Tale, Fievel Goes West, and The Simpsons. Which brings us to our second show. In 1957, just before Westerns began to totally dominate the TV network schedules, Wagon Train premiered on NBC. The hour-long black-and-white episodes of Wagon Train followed an, at the time, unique storytelling format, revolving around the guest stars as much, if not more, than the regular cast of characters. The premise of the show focused on the fortunes, misfortunes, and hardships of pioneering families joining the wagon train of the title in Missouri and heading west across the Rocky Mountains to carve out a new life in the aftermath of the tragedies wrought by the Civil War. The series was loosely based on the 1950 John Ford film Wagon Master. However, within the structure of a wagon train and its passengers being led through hostile country while often stopping in the settlements they passed on the way, the scriptwriters were provided with an opportunity to marry the expected Western action with a wide variety of solid stories. Coupled with a larger-than-average budget, this ability to put the spotlight on the guest stars of each episode made it easy for the producers to attract top-name talent for those roles. 
Wagon Train originally starred Ward Bond as gruff but wise wagon master Beth Adams, and Robert Horton as his young, educated scout Flint McCullough. Over eight seasons, the show would survive cast changes, format changes, and time slot changes to become the longest wagon trek ever to be given the cue of Wagons Ho! Despite debuting on the NBC schedule opposite The Big Record with Patty Page on CBS and ratings juggernaut Disneyland on ABC, Wagon Train not only held its own, but knocked both of its competing shows out of the Nielsen Top 30 and went on to end up in a respectable 23rd place in the ratings for the year. The series' regular cast also featured Terry Wilson as another steady scout and assistant wagon master, and for comedy relief, Frank McGrath as cook Charlie Wooster. However, during the run of the show, Bond and Horton's roles became the dominant characters instantly associated with the show. The role was a perfect fit for Bond. In one interview, he referred to the show's production company, stating, I was playing the Wagon Master long before Review Productions was even born. I knew that character cold. He's just an extension of Ward Bond. I just play myself. There is no argument. Ward Bond was as irascible as the character he played. Although it was not publicly disclosed, Bond was already in terrible health when the series began. He was ill with high blood pressure and had been ordered to reduce his workload. However, he continued to drink heavily while working on the series, even on the set. For his part, Horton told writer James Rosen, Once I was cast in the role, I wrote a biographical sketch of Flint McCullough, so the writers would not have a different point of view about me every time they wrote a script. When I first met Ward, I had nothing but admiration and respect for him. However, very early on, I became aware we really didn't have much in common. We honestly didn't relate at all. At the same time, we enjoyed a great rapport on camera. He looked you in the eye and said his lines with honesty and conviction. He'd be hollering at me at every possible moment, and I'd be smiling back as I rode away from him. Polar opposites in background, politics, and life, Bond and Horton frequently quarreled on the set. Reportedly, much of the antagonism was fueled by Bond's jealousy over Horton receiving more fan mail. Bond would try to limit Horton's screen time and interfere with any good lines Horton might be given in the scripts. While the animosity between the two men created issues, it also led an edge of reality to the many disputes between their characters in the show. The underlying current of two very contrasting individuals and their barely concealed dislike cut straight to the heart of the show and turned Wagon Train into weekly must-see television in living rooms across America. The very next year, Wagon Train spectacularly climbed to the number two spot in the ratings behind Gunsmoke and remained in that spot for three seasons. The wagons were circled and every show ABC and CBS scheduled in the same time slot ended up scalped. Wagon Train finally scored the number one position in the Nielsen ratings in its fifth season. This came about despite the show suffering the crushing blow dealt by the death of Ward Bond in November of 1960. Shows such as Cheyenne, Wyatt Earp, and even Gunsmoke would most likely not have survived the loss of their main star. Although Cheyenne tried when Clint Walker absented himself for an extended period during a contract dispute, However, unlike other series, the popularity of Wagon Train didn't rely strictly on the appeal of its regular stars. As mentioned earlier, the main focus of Wagon Train was on its top-notch guest stars. And while tragic, the unexpected death of Ward Bond didn't have a devastating effect on the show. 
in short order, while the remainder of the show's Bond had already filmed or aired, four other scripts written for his character were quickly rewritten to feature Horton. A final Ward Bond episode, however, was held back to be screened over a year later as a tribute to him. With the death of Bond, a search was initiated to find a replacement, with Lee Marvin a strong favorite to become the next curmudgeonly demanding wagon master. However, the producers decided to go in a somewhat different direction, and three weeks after Bond's final performance on the show, veteran actor John McIntyre quickly took over as wagon master Christopher Hale. No explanation was offered for where Seth Adams went or what had happened to him. McIntyre knew he had big shoes to fill, but he did so not by trying to be a carbon copy of Bond's loud, bellowing, and intimidating wagon master, but by portraying the new wagon master, Christopher Hale, as an educated, more philosophical man, less of a disciplinarian, but in no way soft or weak. Co-stars McGrath and Wilson, who were very close friends with Ward Bond on and off the set, embraced McIntyre, with Wilson stating, you can tell by the way he sits a horse, he's our kind of guy. Wagon Train rolled on smoothly for a while, but Season 5 saw another serious blow descend with all the fury of an Apache attack. At the mid-season point, Robert Horton, who had become the show's main anchor after the death of Ward Bond, announced he was leaving to take a starring role in 110 in the Shade on Broadway. The studio tried everything to get Horton to stay, offering him a very lucrative 10-year contract plus a percentage of the show, but he couldn't be talked out of his decision. Horton's departure seemed to sound the death knell for Wagon Train. No television series up to that point had ever survived the loss of both main stars. However, Wagon Train would once again prove to be the exception to the rule. To fill the void left by Horton's departure, Denny Scott Miller was brought in to join the cast as Scout Duke Shannon. Despite being an imposing six-foot-four, Miller was both personable and professional. He showed up every day with his lines memorized and a low-key positive attitude that endeared him to both cast and crew. With John McIntyre comfortably ensconced as Wagon Master and Denny Miller as his affable scout, Wagon Train was secure at the top of the Nielsen ratings. Inexplicably, however, Season 6 saw the number one rated Wagon Train migrate from NBC to ABC. In the 50s and 60s, when sponsors often controlled the fate of a series, it was fairly common for a show to switch networks, but it was highly unusual for a show at the top of the ratings heap. While the reason behind the switch has never been officially revealed, money was the most likely motivating factor. The newest of the big three networks was struggling and saw an opportunity to raise their profile by offering the producers of Wagon Train a deal that NBC either couldn't or wouldn't match. Whatever the reason, NBC was determined to topple Wagon Train from the perch that helped to achieve atop the Nielsen ratings. To bring about the downfall of Wagon Train, NBC spared no expense developing Network TV's first 90-minute Western, The Virginian, a sprawling, full-color, outdoor Western, which played more like a series of movies than TV episodes. Compared to this shiny new Western, Wagon Train came off like a dowager with a bad hip. Determined to keep the Wagon Train ratings juggernaut rolling along, ABC tried to recapture the steadying presence of the departed Robert Horton by roping in popular Western star Robert Fuller, fresh off his successful run on Laramie. Fuller would deny he was brought in to replace the departed Horton, but in reality, Fuller's role as Scout Cooper Smith was different only in minor details, such as wearing a light-colored cowboy hat instead of the darker-colored hat favored by Horton. 
Furthermore, despite Fuller being nine years younger than Horton, the two actors resembled each other enough in stature and looks to be easily mistaken for each other in a police lineup. And then, like Bond and Horton before them, John McIntyre and Fuller rotated top billing from week to week. ABC also added actor Michael Burns to the cast as Barnaby West in an obvious ploy to appeal to youthful viewers who are rapidly becoming enamored with the star of the Virginian, James Dury. NBC had experimented with color episodes of Wagon Train, but returned the show to its black-and-white format after only five episodes. When ABC took over the series, they were too caught up in their victory to think ahead and simply kept Wagon Train's black-and-white format. When NBC unveiled The Virginian in the Peacock Network's famous Living Color, the new show had an immediate impact on viewers, resulting in Wagon Train quickly tumbling from their coveted number one position in the ratings. By the end of the season, serious damage had been done. Wagon Train had dropped to number 25, with James Drury as The Virginian nipping at its heels at number 26. Sounds like Wagon Drain to me, Paul. You got it. Anxious to protect what was rapidly being seen as an ill-advised acquisition, ABC doubled down on their investment in an attempt to revitalize the creaking of the wagons that, as you say, were going down the drain and had already made a long four-season journey. An obvious and needed change was a decision to put up the dollars to film wagon train in color. But this became even more expensive when ABC also expanded wagon train from 60 to 90 minutes to match the Virginian. Certainly the change to color, while costly, was a needed upgrade, but the expanded format was a bad miscalculation. The 90-minute episodes of Wagon Train were nothing more than the traditional four acts of an hour-long script inflated to an hour and a half of airtime. Wagon Train's 90-minute episodes turned into a hodgepodge of disconnected storytelling, with some episodes seeming to forget the show was about a wagon train moving across the country. Flapstick scenes were inserted randomly by somebody with a tin ear for what was appropriate for what had been up to that point a brilliant drama. All of this made the viewing of Wagon Train as much of a trial as what the characters were up against on the screen. But the absolute worst thing that ABC did to Wagon Train was to abandon the series' traditional Wednesday night time slot and move the show to Monday nights against a lineup of top-rated comedies, The Lucy Show, Danny Thomas, and Andy Griffith. Presented with this viewing choice, families chose the laughs over the dirge of a struggling Western. Wagon Train quietly slid down the ratings until it found itself on life support. Due to the expensive 90-minute color episodes earning disastrously low ratings, ABC made an attempt to salvage something from the situation by restoring Wagon Train to its original black-and-white 60-minute format for the show's eighth and final season. But it was a classic case of too little too late especially when ABC bounced the series time slot again to Sunday nights, where it was in a showdown with My Favorite Martian and the first half of the powerhouse Ed Sullivan show on CBS and Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color on NBC. After 284 episodes, cancellation made it clear Wagon Train was never going to complete its trek to California. Both of these shows were so popular they generated numerous items of tie-in merchandise. Everything from toy gun and holster sets to lunchboxes, puzzles, board games, playsets, and more. After the podcast, ride over to SixGunJustice.com and check out the recent post featuring Rawhide and Wagon Train TV show memorabilia. 
Of particular interest to me, as always, were the novels, British annuals, and comic tie-ins to both shows. With some interesting differences, Sheriff Minutia would like to point out. Rawhide had one paperback original tie-in novel. It was written by Frank C. Robertson, who was a regular writer of TV tie-in novels, including the tie-in for Wanted Dead or Alive. Wagon Train, on the other hand, had three paperback original tie-in novels, Wagon Master, Wagons West, and The Scout. These were written by Robert Turner, whose stories regularly appeared in the earlier pulp magazines. All four paperback tie-ins are worth tracking down and reading for fans of the shows. Wagon Train also had an entry in Whitman's line of juvenile TV tie-in novels, plus its own little golden book. Rawhide apparently didn't get the herd to town in time and missed getting in on the action. Both shows had a number of British annuals. However, with 14, Wagon Train appeared more popular than Rawhide, which had 9. These can be found reasonably priced on eBay. However, you have to be wary of the postage if the dealer is in England. This significant difference in popularity for Wagon Train over Rawhide also extended to their appearance in comic books. Wagon Train had a run of 12 Dell comics and 4 issues from Gold Key, while Rawhide had only 8 issues from Dell and 2 from Gold Key. If you visit the Six-Gun Justice website, you'll also find a post with many of the covers from the tie-in novels, British annuals, and tie-in comics. There's the clanging of the Chuck Wagon Triangle partner, telling us to wrap up this episode with our shootouts and shoutouts. Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being our premier sponsor. Thanks also to author Chris Enns and the Western Writers of America. Thanks to Roundup Magazine for their support in promoting our podcast. Thanks to our crew of Patreon backers for their financial support. If you are enjoying the podcast, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash sixgunjustice and consider giving a small monthly stipend to help us keep moseying along. Donations are appreciated, but clearly not expected or necessary. We're grateful for all our listeners and truly happy to have you sharing the trail ride with us. Next Monday, Paul will be hosting a six-gun Justice Speed Listen featuring his take on TV Western themes, all in under 15 minutes, give or take. And in two weeks, Rich and I will be back with episode 23 of the Six-Gun Justice podcast featuring our seasonal offering, Christmas Out West. And don't forget our Six-Gun Justice Conversations segment every Wednesday when either Paul or I get to talk with writers and friends who love the Western genre as much as we do. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and don't eat any yellow snow. Adios for now. We're out of here. Let's ride. Join us in two weeks for another full-length episode of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by author Chris Enns, the Western Writers of America, and Wolfpack Publishing, publishers of such best-selling Western series as The Legend of the Black Rose and Concho.